You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. It's now open to our scripture reading. This morning, in connection with the Canons of Dort, we read from Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him... You too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. This morning the sermon is on the truth of God's Word as it's been summarized and confessed by the church in the Canons of Dort. And this morning we're looking at chapter 3-4, articles 1, 2, and 3. At the top of the page there is a title, The Corruption of Man, His Conversion to God, and the Manner in Which It Occurs. Article 1, The Effect of the Fall In the beginning, man was created in the image of God. 
He was adorned in his mind with true and wholesome knowledge of his Creator and of all spiritual things. His will and heart were upright, all his affections pure, and therefore man was completely holy. But rebelling against God through the instigation of the devil and through his own free will, he deprived himself of these excellent gifts and instead brought upon himself blindness, horrible darkness, futility, and perverseness of judgment in his mind, wickedness, rebelliousness, and stubbornness in his will and heart, and impurity in all his affections. Article 2, Spread of Corruption. Since after the fall man became corrupt, he, as a corrupt father, brought forth corrupt children. Thus the corruption has spread from Adam to all his descendants, the exception of Christ alone, not by imitation, as the Pelagians of old maintained, but by the propagation of a perverted nature, according to the righteous judgment of God. Article 3, Man's Total Inability Therefore, all men are conceived in sin and are born as children of wrath, incapable of any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in sins, and slaves of sin. And without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they neither will nor can return to God, reform the depraved nature, or prepare themselves for its reformation. Beloved congregation of Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we're continuing with our series of sermons on the doctrines of grace. And today we come to the doctrine of total depravity. The T in tulip. A minister's love to preach on this subject. Why, you might ask? Well, it's not because we're morbid. It's not because we're pessimistic by nature. That's because there's no shortage of illustrations when it comes to this sort of thing. It's always easy to introduce the topic. Sin and and sinful people are everywhere. You don't have to look very far. Just recently, CNN was carrying a story about a man who'd killed a little girl somewhere in the United States. Perhaps you heard about it. The things he had already done and the things he was going to do were horrific. We look in our own life experiences and we can also find plenty of examples of people being cruel, people being evil, sometimes to a lesser and sometimes to a greater degree. Sin and wickedness are plainly here. Now historically speaking, the Arminians, they would have agreed they would agree that there is a lot of sin and wickedness in the world. But they wouldn't agree with the Reformed explanation of the impact of this fact upon the salvation of human beings. They would not agree that the presence of sin and wickedness in the world necessarily means that people are incapable in themselves of taking steps towards God. Now the Arminian position is captured in the rejection of errors on page 561 of our book of praise. Number four. This is a a literal quote from Arminian writings. The unregenerate man is not really or totally dead in sins or deprived of all powers unto spiritual good. 
He can yet hunger and thirst after righteousness and life and offer the sacrifice of a contrite and broken spirit which is pleasing to God. That's a quote from the Arminians. That's what the Arminians believed, and that's what many Christians today continue to believe. They believe that man is merely sick. We confess that the Bible teaches something completely different. We confess that the fall into sin did not merely make human beings sick. Rather, it killed us. makes us dead. And so the fall, right? We talk about the fall. The fall was not a mere foot or two where you might get a bruise. Rather, the fall was from awesome heights to a terrible depth. And when you fall from awesome heights to a terrible depth, there's an awful impact that nobody walks away from on their own. The doctrine of total depravity teaches us that the fall is great. Its impact is great. It's ugly. Then it also points us to the other truth, that as our fall is so great, so is our salvation in Christ. And so I preach to you God's Word as it's been confessed by the church in the canons of Dort with this theme, so great a fall, so great a salvation. And we'll consider, first of all, the biblical basis of this doctrine, and then second, the godly outcome of this doctrine. If the book of Ephesians were the only book in the New Testament, we would still have the doctrines of grace. Of course, many things are are clarified and amplified with the other 26 books. But yet you can find all the doctrines of grace in some form in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And so it's no big surprise that also the doctrine of total depravity, or perhaps we can put it better as total inability, is also found here. It's in our reading from Ephesians 2, particularly in verses 1-3. through 3. In this passage, in Ephesians 2, Paul is describing what a person looks like before coming to faith in Christ, before regeneration. And there are four things that we can draw out of this. In verse 1, Paul says that the unregenerate are dead in transgressions and sins. Again, the most popular view is that people are merely sick. And sure, there are, there are people who will take the, the more optimistic view that man is actually generally healthy. But he has a few struggles now and then. But overall, things are pretty good with mankind. But most people are realistic. And they realize that there are things like war and disease and starvation and poverty and crime. So they say people are not healthy. But there are a lot of good things too. So man is not dead. He's just sick. Brothers and sisters, Paul Paul reads the human condition differently. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says that man is dead in transgressions and sins. As far as his relationship to God is concerned, man is a corpse. Unable to make any movement towards God. Cannot respond to God. Apart from God, he's a hopeless case. So that's the first thing. Dead in sin. The second thing almost seems contradictory. 
The second verse of Ephesians 2 says that the unregenerate live. They live in transgressions and sins. They are dead to God, as far as God is concerned, but they are alive to wickedness. The unregenerate actively practice evil. Evil is their daily habit. Dead, but alive. Now, someone once compared Paul's description here to what old horror movies and stories would call a zombie. I don't know if you remember about zombies, but zombies are people who've died but but still walk around and, and carry out all kinds of mischief. It's a gruesome, ugly idea. But it's even worse because this walking, active human corpse is rotting away. Which is pretty disgusting if you care to think about it. In this way, the unregenerate are the spiritual walking dead. They're active in one sense, but definitely not towards God. So, dead in sin, alive to wickedness. Now the third thing we have in verses 2 and 3. They speak there, Paul speaks there about the unregenerate following a certain path. They follow the ways of this world. They follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which is another way of saying that they follow Satan. They follow their sinful desires and thoughts. To sum it up, the unregenerate are enslaved. Enslaved to the world. Enslaved to the devil. Enslaved to their own sinful wants. The unregenerate are captive to sin. And the strange thing is that they like it that way. And they want to keep it that way. Even though their slavery will kill them for eternity, even when their slavery brings hard things upon them in this life already, in spite of all that, they would rather be a slave to sin than a son of God. That's the third thing. The fourth thing, this is where we get God's perspective on this sorry state of affairs. The unregenerate is by nature an object of God's wrath. Literally, it says that we were by nature children of wrath. That expression, children of wrath, that harkens back to the the fall of Adam and Eve. The fall led to God's wrath and judgment. The curse of sin was like a father producing children, children of wrath. And God's wrath is not simply a a future reality, something that people will suffer when they go to hell, but it is a present fact. Just as believers experience eternal life in a small measure now already, so also the unregenerate, they also experience God's wrath and judgment in a small measure in this life already. God's wrath, past, present, and future, is the lot of the unregenerate so long as they are not converted to Christ. And so the picture painted by Paul in Ephesians 2 is very dark. There are no shades of gray here. It's all darkness and death. And of course, there are a few other aspects to consider from elsewhere in Scripture. First off, there's the height from which we've fallen. According to what we're told in Genesis, man was created good and in God's image. God's image. 
Now we hear that expression so often that we, we might take it for granted that we know what it really means. The Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 3 tells us that it means that man was created in true righteousness and holiness. That's a direct quote from Ephesians 4.24 there in the Catechism. So there's no arguing with it. The Canons of Dort affirm the same thing and even expand on it. And when we say that man is created in the image of God and that means that he was created in true righteousness and holiness, then we're talking about the moral sense of the image of God. In this moral sense, man has lost, as long as he's unconverted, he has lost the image of God. Now we can also speak about the image of God in another sense. right? That was the moral sense. We can also speak about it in the natural sense. Man reflects God's image in the fact that he's spiritual and rational. Man, like God, has a mind and a will. Man can be creative. In this sense, fallen man retains the image of God. But because he is fallen man, his mind, his will, his creativity, all those things that make him the image of God, those things have been polluted. They've been stained with sin. Though man was created awesome, and wonderful. He has fallen from those great heights. And the impact isn't pretty. Article 1 of chapter 3-4 in the Canons of Dort tells us that Adam rebelled against God and so, by so doing, he robbed himself of all the excellent gifts. Those gifts which come from God. He could say, I want to put it in vivid terms, he, he traded in a T-bone steak for a putrid bowl of thin soup. Adam brought upon himself all sorts of terrible things. Blindness, darkness, vanity, evil, rebellion, and, and every other word you can associate with wickedness. Think of what the Spirit says in Ephesians 4.19. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Apart from Christ, this is our condition. It's our condition because it's been passed on to us. In Article 2, the canon summarized the scriptural teaching about what we call the imputation or the passing on of Adam's sin. Romans 5.12 tells us that death and sin came to all men because of Adam, because of his sin. The corruption of Adam's nature was passed on through the generations. Now, so, somebody might look at this and wonder, is there a sin gene? If we studied it long enough, could we find that this has something to do with biological heredity? Maybe it does. Though, how would you prove it? Because there are no sinless people. Nevertheless, the, the Scriptures lead us in a, a different direction. Our sinfulness is a spiritual condition passed on through the generations, passed from Adam to his descendants. Adam was the head of the human race. And as such, he took an action that had consequences for all of us, consequences that were passed on. We might not like it and we might not think it's fair, but it's the way it is. 
And if we reflect on it for a moment, we actually see this happening more often in our lives. Let me use an illustration that I use with the catechism students. Let's say you're in the band, the credo band. You go to a concert and the, the band leader or perhaps somebody else announces that the band has decided that we're going to play this or that song for you. Now, it could be that you personally, you hate that song. And if you really had a say in it, you wouldn't be playing that song. But you're part of the band, so you play it. And it happens with other things too. Adam was our head. And he did something that affects all of us. He brought all of us under God's righteous judgment. He brought all of us under the curse of original sin. Because of Adam's sin, we're all conceived and born in sin. Article 3 says, conceived in sin. And that expression comes from Psalm 51, the psalm we sang a few moments ago. Verse 5 of Psalm 51, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now reading that verse cleans up any misunderstandings that we might have about that concept of being conceived and born in sin. Some people in the past have had the idea that this is somehow connected with the morality of reproduction. As if the thing which leads to children is somehow sinful. Psalm 51 verse 5 says it plainly. David confesses that even when he was born, he was already sinful. And even before he was born. In fact, right from the moment of conception... Human beings are stained and polluted with sin from the moment that they are human beings. We call that original sin. Original sin is a fact of life for all people. We have our original sin, but this also produces actual sins in our lives. We not only sin in what we do, but also in what we fail to do. Our nature is such that by ourselves we are totally unable to do any saving good. Now saving good, it's an expression the canons use, saving good means anything that we could do that would result in our salvation. Now saving good is to be distinguished from civil good. Through God's kind restraint in this world, Unregenerate people can do many outwardly good things. Things that are good for society. One of the kindest people I've ever known was a lapsed Roman Catholic nun turned New Age agnostic. She did much civil good. But the good she did was not a saving good. So far as I know, she was dead in sins and a slave of sin. She did not cling to Christ's blood as the only basis for her salvation. Yet she tried so hard to help so many people and she showed so much kindness. All this is to say that the the doctrine we're looking at this morning does not say that people are as evil as they possibly can be. That's why it's better not to use the term total depravity. makes it sound like people are as bad as they possibly can be. Total inability is a much better expression. Total inability captures the thought of Scripture better. Namely, that the fall into sin is so great as to make man completely unable to return to God apart from the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit. 
Apart from Him, man can't even begin to think about returning to God or even to change his ways so as to be able to please God. Man has fallen so far and so great that he can't even lift a finger for his salvation. Now if that was all we could say, life in existence would be depressing. But there's good news. And the good news is only so good because the bad news is so bad. The good news of salvation in Christ becomes even better, more grand and glorious when we realize what it is exactly that Christ has saved us from. Scripture tells us in 1 Peter 1.18 that believers have been redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to them from their forefathers. Empty way of life. That's about a human existence in the grip of sin. It's about death, vanity, and darkness. The empty way of life is about slavery. And then we have Romans 5.9. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? We are saved by Christ from God. From God's wrath in particular. And why was God angry at us? Because of who we were apart from Him. Without His Spirit living in us, without Christ for us, we are children of wrath. We are rebels and traitors who deserve the eternal death penalty. And so Christ saves us from God's wrath. The good news is only so good because the bad news is so bad. And if we were to somehow weaken what the Bible says about this, about our fallen condition, like the Arminians did, then we would also be weakening what the Bible says about the greatness of our salvation, the greatness of our Savior. You see, our fall is so great, but so is our salvation in Jesus Christ. And recognizing that, is a great theological truth, but it's more than that. It has a powerful impact on our lives. And let's consider that now with our, our second point as we look at the godly outcome of this doctrine. Now, I don't want there to be any doubt about this one fact this morning. We have a more awesome salvation in Christ than we often realize. We come from a fallen race. But we have a Savior who became one of us and brought us back to the Father. He restored us already in a certain measure and someday He will restore us fully in every possible way. But there's more. When we talk about restoration, we're thinking about the, the second Adam making us like the first Adam before he fell into sin. But Christ's work means more than just making, like, making it like it was at the beginning. He's going to make us even more grand and glorious than the first Adam before the fall. God's grace in Christ and its effects are far greater than sin and its effects. We see this in Romans 5.20 when God tells us that grace increases far more than sin. What we have in salvation, what we have in Christ, far exceeds that which we lost through the fall into sin. 
In Christ, we're not only restored to what Adam was, but the way is also opened for us by God's grace to become all that Adam could have been if he had not fallen into sin. And that's all a part of our future hope. But its effects begin now. We have union with Christ by faith now. In so many ways, already we are experiencing the greatness of a life with Him. And part of that, like Paul after the Lord grabbed him on the way to Damascus, like Paul, the scales fall away from our eyes. Having our identity in this great Savior gives us new eyes to see. We see reality the way it is. We see ourselves the way we really are. We begin to see two truths. We are at the same time justified in Christ and yet still sinners. You know, Martin Luther and other reformers had a Latin expression that captured that truth. Now, normally I don't put Latin expressions in sermons, but there are a number of Latin expressions that are popular in church life, you know, the, the sola, sola scriptura, sola fide, and so on. I think we should add just this, this one more Latin expression. Just one. Simul justus et peccator. Say it again. Simul justus et peccator. That means, at the same time, just and a sinner. Now that word sinner, that can be used at least two different ways in the Bible. One way is as a synonym, a word that means the same, a synonym for unregenerate. In that sense, a sinner is somebody who is unconverted and living in sin, under God's judgment, under God's wrath. But that word sinner can also be used in another sense to refer to converted people who sin. It's used in that sense in Lord's Day 51 when we we say in the context of the Lord's Prayer, do not impute to us wretched sinners any of our transgressions. And so on. In that second sense, we are sinners. And as long as we remain on this earth, we will be sinners. This is the case even as we have our identity in our union with Christ. And when we're honest with ourselves, we know that what the Scripture says is true. The fall into sin continues to affect us. Total inability is a fact of our personal history. If you ever write your autobiography or someone else writes your biography, it can and should be mentioned that total inability to contribute anything to your salvation, that was a historical fact of your life. You see where this is going? Our identity brings us to open eyes and honesty. Honesty brings us to humility. The tree of total inability produces the fruit of a humble and godly heart and life. 
when we know the great fall from which we've been saved, and when we realize that we could never contribute even a breath to our salvation, then we are going to be humble before God and we're going to be humble before our neighbor. Now it has to be said that this is a completely counter-cultural idea. You know, traditionally, Christians spoke of seven deadly sins. They were lust, laziness, gluttony, anger, greed, envy, and finally pride. Now most of these seven deadly sins are still recognized as being something bad, though they've been twisted, they've been transformed. For instance, lust. Lust that is out of control is still considered to be a problem. Although today we call it a sexual addiction. But of the seven deadly sins, only one has been completely rehabilitated so that it is no longer a sin at all. And that's pride. Today our culture tells us that pride is virtuous. Pride is a good thing. And if you have no pride, what's wrong with you? That's a bad thing. We live in a time where pride is no longer seen as a sin. If we're honest with ourselves, the same is often true in our subculture. Now, most of us in our subculture come from a Dutch immigrant background. I realize not everybody shares that, but for most of us. And perhaps not always and not with everyone, but to a large degree it often seems to be the case that pride is not seen as a sin in our subculture too. I'm not going to give my theories about why this is so, but it often seems like the subculture, the Dutch immigrant subculture, also regarded and perhaps still does regard pride as a virtue. Keeping up appearances, very, very important. Don't let your guard down. Don't show any weakness. Always be aware that people are watching you. People are judging you. What are people going to think? It doesn't make any difference whether these immigrants are, are Christians or not, whether they're Reformed or not. It just seems like that's the way it often is. And I realize there are exceptions. And at any rate, man wherever he comes from, always slides towards pride. No matter what his background may be. Let's get a little bit closer to home. In our churches, this pride often gets translated into works righteousness or a practical form of Arminianism. And perhaps it happens through some tragic misunderstanding of the doctrine of the covenant whereby we think it's up to us to fulfill the obligations. It's a contract, right? God does His part, we do our part, and we get saved. And then we think, this is how God will accept us. This is how God will save us. Sure, we're saved by grace alone in theory. That's what's in our confession. But in practice, we have to do our part. And then maybe we wonder why it is that God seems like He's so far away. Could it be that our pride has led us to think that we can and that we must do something for our salvation? 
Those who would find their lives must lose them. The biblical doctrine of total inability confronts us about our pride. It reminds us that the Bible repeatedly condemns pride. Not only in connection with our salvation, but with everything in life. The Bible never teaches us that pride is a good thing. I can't say that enough. Instead of pride, we live out of our union with Christ. We think of ourselves as we are in Him. We have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Humility. And humility leads us thankfulness. You know, pride may or may not be at the root of the Arminian errors. I don't know. It's very difficult to say anything meaningful about theologians and what was in their hearts. They lived hundreds of years ago. But brothers and sisters, we can say this. The Arminian error fosters and encourages pride. And when followed consistently, which thankfully it very rarely is, if the Arminian error is followed consistently, it produces pride. Man has something to boast about in his salvation. But when the doctrines of grace are embraced, the end result is humility and godliness. The sovereign God will not have any boasting from man, especially when it comes to the matter of making a contribution to our salvation. So you see what the godly outcome of embracing this doctrine is? It's a life humbly lived before God and our neighbor. We become thankful people. Thankful people constantly live with their eyes directed upwards to the One whom they thank. And this results in praise for God. Humility and godliness result in relationships characterized by peace and love. We get a glorious foretaste on this earth of the age to come. This is all because our salvation in Christ, what's been revealed to us, is so great, so deep, so wonderful. And after all that, let me ask you, does it seem odd to call this teaching a doctrine of grace? Is the doctrine of total inability the gospel? What is the gospel? What is the good news? Other than the fact that God graciously saves those who are unable to save themselves. This is really a doctrine grace. It's the Gospel. God sovereignly saves helpless dead sinners through Christ. He saves them. He saves us because He will be praised by us. The doctrines of grace, including the teaching on total inability, they were designed by God. Not by John Calvin. Not by the the Synod of Dort. The doctrines of grace were designed by God to humble us. They were designed by the sovereign God so that we would place our eyes on Him and on absolutely no one and nothing else. God reveals these teachings to us in His Word so that we would exalt Him and Him alone in this age 
and in the glorious age to come. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.